uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three chapters of Scripture. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is probably Jesus' best known but least understood teaching. And the title of this preaching series is Flipped, because Jesus, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, flips everything about our culture, the way of the world, what society tells us. He flips everything on its head. And listen, if you want a very helpful kind of image in your head as you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, let me tell you, the Sermon on the Mount is like taking a plain piece of paper, a big or a big piece of canvas, and starting to paint on it a picture of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. That's what is happening on the Sermon on the Mount. With words, Jesus is painting a picture of what a disciple of Christ looks like. One who is different. One who is set apart. One who is living a radical, upside-down, flipped-on-its-head Christian life. Now, the beautiful thing about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus lived and modeled everything that we read. You know, they say the great teachers, they don't just teach they, they, they show you what they teach. It's not just about words. It's about words and then showing the way through actions. And Jesus is basically the Sermon on the Mount in the flesh. If you read Matthew 5, 6, 7, you can get this incredible image of your, in your head of what a disciple of Christ looks like. But if you read the rest of the Gospels, you will see Jesus living out everything that he had taught. One more important thing just to mention before we get into the text. Uh, The flipped life is not natural. The flipped life is not naturally how human beings live. The flipped life that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount is one that is supernatural, that, that is full of the Holy Spirit. That is the only way that we are able to do what Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount through the Holy Spirit's power. So last week, we read the first four Beatitudes. And actually, the the Beatitudes split in half. The first four are about me and God. And the second four, which we're going to look at today, are about me and other people, my relationships and interactions with others. Very quick recap, whistle stop on last week. So if you miss any of the messages, you can go to the YouTube channel. You can go to the website uh, where Charles and the incredible tech team do a great job in keeping things up to date. And you can watch previous sermons and previous messages. But very quick kind of 30-second recap. Last week, the first four Beatitudes were blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are you if you know that you are broken, if you know that spiritually you haven't made it. If you know that, you are blessed. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn, those who feel the weight of their sin. If we feel the weight of our sin, then we can rejoice in God's grace even more. Thirdly, was blessed are the meek, those that know their understanding, sorry, their understanding, their standing between God and man. 
They're, they're not proud. They're not arrogant. They know where they stand in, in line with God and in line with others. And the fourth one was, blessed are the, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, be spiritually ambitious for the justice of others and the things of God. So that was kind of like a, a quick recap of last week, the first four Beatitudes, which is about man and God. Now let's read Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 to 12, the second set of Beatitudes, which really are about me and others, how I engage with other people in the world. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil and falsely accuse you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're going to go through those four Beatitudes. Firstly, blessed are the merciful, verse 7. This beatitude describes true godliness. You might ask the question, Mark, what does godliness look like? On earth, as a Christian, as a believer, what does it look like to be godly? Well, that beatitude tells us, because Luke 6, verse 36 says, Be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. So when you are merciful to others, you are being like God himself. It's quite a thought. And, and, and what happens is often this little test, because the beatitude that came before it was blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And, and we can be like, yes, Lord, I hunger and thirst after you. Yes, Lord, I want more of you. I want to be a Christian who lives for you. Do you know what then happens almost straight away? God will test you. And a person will come along who has hurt you, always let you down who has said unpleasant things about you, who has lied about you. And you have this choice. Do you go with the natural inclination to seek revenge? Or do you go with the supernatural with God's help and show mercy? The, the Greek word for mercy here is ilios. And it is the exact opposite of wrath or justice. So Elios is this gracious action of offering grace and forgiveness to someone even when it hurts. It's letting someone off the hook when they don't deserve it. It's not reminding them of their faults. It's letting them save face when really you should tell the world what they have done. It's covering for them when they've made a mess of things. It's instead of giving them a guilt trip, it's setting them free. That is what merciful looks like. And you see, being merciful is doing what God does to us. 
Let me help you with a very helpful distinction. I hope this helps. So the word grace is used a lot. Grace. God's grace for mankind. Grace is really giving people what they don't deserve. Jesus' death on the cross, if we believe in Jesus' death on the cross, his death and resurrection, then we get what we deserve. We get a place in heaven that we don't deserve. Some people have given an acrostic for grace, which is God's riches at Christ's expense. We get what we don't deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is not giving people what they do deserve. It's not exacting the justice and the revenge that people do deserve. Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, said that he was a blasphemer and a persecutor of Christians and yet was shown mercy. Now, the truth is that many of us here, if not all of us, will have been rejected by people, betrayed by friends, family, loved ones. We'd have been lied about. We'd have had a close friend who we thought had our back suddenly turn around and lie and let us down. All of us would have been hurt and badly treated by others. And it is easy to then long for justice and revenge. But let me tell you this. When we give mercy, when we are like God, something spiritual happens. There's a breakthrough of incredible proportions that happens. One of the best examples in Scripture of this is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. So in case you don't know, Joseph had 11 other brothers, and he was beaten up by his brothers. He was betrayed by his brothers and sold as a slave to Egypt by his brothers. They then went and told his dad that he was dead and had been beaten up by wild animals. So Joseph, even when he was being godly in front of Potiphar's wife, even when he was in prison, I'm almost certain would have dreamed of the day when he could get revenge on his brothers. He'd have dreamed of the day when he could get them back for what they'd done to him. He was in prison waiting for God to kind of bring him to the forefront and interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And he would have been wrestling with those thoughts of what he was going to do to Reuben and what he was going to do to all of the different brothers that he had. But when the day came, when the day came, you can read about it in Genesis 45. It's a beautiful story. When, you, when the day came, when Joseph met his brothers, when they came to Egypt in search of food, he broke down and wept and showed them mercy. He chose not to seek vengeance, but to show them mercy. Interestingly, he didn't show them up in front of Pharaoh. He didn't even tell his dad what they had done. He saved their face. He protected them. And what happened was Joseph was just raised up even more and raised up to be the prime minister of Egypt. And God used him in a powerful way. You say, that blows my mind. You know, if I'd have been Joseph, I would have wanted to smash my brothers in. I would have wanted to do all this to them. But remember, when it comes to being merciful to others, is that not how God was with you? Let me, let me say this. One of the greatest breakthroughs that you will ever have in your life in living in the freedom of God is when you tear up the record of wrongdoings that people have done to you and throw it in the trash. 
when you throw that away and you're no longer about the revenge and you're no longer about getting back at that person and getting back at them and sorting them out and sorting out them and that thing in my past and that thing that my mum did to me and that thing that my brother did and that thing that my former girlfriend or former boyfriend or former friend did to me. When, when, when we rip up that book of all the things we want to do to people who have harmed us and wronged us, and we are merciful like our Father in heaven is merciful, then the Father's blessings come upon us. There's a new intimacy that will come, a new freedom that will come. And let me just say this in closing, and we could just preach the whole message on this one beatitude, but let me just say one more thing in closing on this. Nothing moves you to forgive and show mercy like the wow and the wonder of knowing that you have been forgiven by the Lord Almighty for, for what you have done wrong, for what God has forgiven you. Nothing moves us more to be merciful to others in knowing that we are sinners but saved by the grace of God, not shown the justice that we deserve, but recipients of God's mercy. True godliness is to show mercy to those around us. Okay, second beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8. The heart. The heart is the seat of our personality. It's where our mind, emotions, and will interact. It's where intellect and understanding is forged. And what Jesus is talking about here is, is an inward purity, a heart that has no malice, that has nothing to prove. Now, Jeremiah says in, in Jeremiah 17, verse 19, that the heart is deceitful above all. Jesus talks a lot about the heart. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. He says, what you honor with your mouth, your heart is not far away. He says the greatest of all commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your mind and with all your heart. And David prayed famously in the Psalms, create in me a pure heart, O God. A pure heart is, is for our hearts to be washed continually in the grace of God. Pure, the word pure in the Greek it's cathoriae, and it's free from stain. A whole life, both public and private, that is transparent before God and man. That our thoughts and our actions are not fake. That there's no hypocrisy in our lives. That when we do mess up and get it wrong, we go to God for his grace and are cleansed by his grace continually. Jesus makes a continuous distinction in the Sermon on the Mount between the internal and the external. And he picks up the Pharisees on this again and again and again. Just going to give you one example from Luke 11 and verse 39. And the Lord said to the Pharisees, You Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. Like I said, we'll see that again and again and again over the coming weeks. 
Jesus is more concerned about the internal, our thoughts, our hearts, rather than the external, because you change the external by dealing with the internal. Now, what's the promise that, that Jesus gives for those who have a pure heart? Blessed are the pure in heart. What does it say? They will see God. They will see God. Wow. What a statement. Now, yes, when you become a Christian, we have a new heart. We have a new heart. We are born again into God's family. It means one day when we die, we will go to see God in heaven. But it's more than that. Because a pure heart, a life of purity on this earth, means we will see a measure of God's glory. God shows a measure of his glory to those with a pure heart. Moses in Exodus asked the Lord and said, Lord, could you show me your face? And God said to him, well, you can't cope with my face, but let me pass in front of you. We can't cope with seeing God this side of eternity, but we want to see more of God's presence. We want to see more of him working in our lives. We want to hear him more. We want to see miracles more. We want to know his presence more. A disciplined Christian who is washed continually, whose heart is washed continually in God's grace, who has a pure heart, will see the things of God. Again, it's not about being perfect. It's about knowing that your heart can be wicked. Your heart can go to dark, dark places, but coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, cleanse me. Let me create in me a new heart. Wash my heart clean again. Let me be free of hypocrisy and free of lies and free of putting a mask up in front of people. Let me be pure in my motives. And as we do that, God says, let me show you things that you've not seen before. Let me open up realms of the spiritual that you've not experienced before indescribable, incalculable, beautiful things that I only show to those of the pure of heart. Okay, there's so much here. This is so, so rich. But let's move on to the third of our Beatitudes today. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9. There's a natural link here between those who have a purity of heart and those who become peacemakers. And let me say, the work of a peacemaker is God's work. It's divine work. A peacemaker is basically one who is in the business of reconciliation. It's the same verb that Jesus used here in Matthew 5. is applied by Paul to what God has done through Jesus Christ in Colossians 1 and verse 20. It says that through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile man to God. Please to reconcile earth to heaven. It's the same, same verb, same word. You see, it's difficult to be a peacemaker. It's difficult to be one that tries to reconcile one to another. Jesus, of course, was the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus was one who blew the Jews' minds when he came, because the Jews were expecting Jesus to be one who would come with the sword, who would be one who would come and fight the Romans and destroy the Romans. That's what the Jews were expecting. And yet Jesus came with a message to love your enemies. 
Jesus came as a peacemaker. Jesus came as one to make peace between God and man. Now, there's a dignity to being a peacemaker. You're being like Jesus, first and foremost. It's, it's an unselfish role. It's a role where you're not taking sides necessarily. And it may well end in failure. And I think there's kind of two areas of peacemakers. Firstly, I think those who are called to be active peacemakers. By that, I mean they take the initiative. They go to people and try and create peace between warring factions or those in a relationship who are having problems and issues or those in a work context who are just not getting on. It's an active taking initiative. It's getting people together. It's attempting to reconcile differences and being the mediator. Again, in that context and in that role, you could often be rejected. Get out of my face. Get out of my business. I don't want to hear you. I don't want you to sort this problem out. Go away. Sometimes that will work, and other times we'll face rejection. So there's, there's the active peacemakers, and then there's the passive peacemakers. And what I mean by that is those who are, who are willing to go along with the process. If you're having a disagreement with someone, and someone comes along and tries to be the peacemaker then you have to be that passive participant to make the effort to try and resolve the issue, to play your part, to come to the table, to, to offer forgiveness, to seek forgiveness. And it's hard, and it's difficult, and the role of the peacemaker can often lead to just difficulties and pain. But again, look at the blessing that is linked to being a peacemaker. Because it says they shall be called sons of God. You see, a peacemaker forfeits, forfeits earthly glory for the sake of heavenly glory. You know, they, they, they may not get a reward for what they are trying to do on this earth. They may get battered and rejected and pushed away. But there is a reward in heaven for trying to be that peacemaker to reconcile people together. Basically, you're being a chip off God's block. You're being a chip off your dad's block when you're being a peacemaker. You're doing what Jesus did. You're bringing about peace in a conflict. I mean, actually, evangelism, telling people about Jesus, sharing the good news of Jesus is the ultimate form of peacemaking. Because what you're doing is saying to people, look, there's a way where you can be at peace with God. And that way is through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, provides a path between you and God. So by telling people the gospel and sharing people the gospel, you're being a peacemaker. You're sharing the, the beautiful good news of Jesus Christ. So blessed are the peacemakers. It flips things on its head. You're willing to look weak. You're willing to say sorry. You're willing to fail. You're willing to get in there amongst difficult situations. And in that, there is a blessing because you are following the example of Jesus. Final one, and it's a fun one, and it's a beautiful one. Blessed are the persecuted, verses 10 to 12. Persecution is part of being a Christian. We shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes. Followers of the peacemaker, Jesus, 
will be persecuted. Jesus said this in John 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And Paul said, everyone who wants to live a godly life for Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. Sobering words. Persecution is basically a mark of authenticity for believers. Now, it's an important to note here that actually you've got a double beatitude here. Kind of Jesus says the same thing twice. And in the Hebrew language, if that happens, it's for emphasis. It's because the writer is trying to show you something and make doubly sure that you get it. So, so Jesus is making his point twice here with like a double punch because we would, might want to ignore this part of the message. When we face slander, rejection, when we miss out on, on promotion because, because of our beliefs or because of what we stood up for in the workplace, when we're mocked, when our social media posts get abused or ridiculed, that is a normal mark of discipleship. We shouldn't be surprised at the obstacles and pain that come along. But I want to point out one very important thing. Look at verse 11, because this is important. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when others persecute you, do all kinds of things on my account, or because of me. It's important that we know that the persecution that we face is to be because of Jesus. Being really honest here, it's not because you're a bit annoying, or because you're a bit strange, or a bit objectionable, or just go in there with two feet and make a mess, or you're obnoxious. If you get persecuted for those things, then deal with your character and deal with the way you're dealing with people. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying we're to expect persecution because of him. Because we are different. Because we are living to the beat of a different drum. Because we are so alive. Because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and what's the blessing in here? Blessed are those who are persecuted, verse 12, for they will rejoice and be glad. We're not going to do it again, but I'll get the band up here and let's rejoice and glad because we're getting persecuted. You know, but there's something beautiful, Jesus is saying, about persecution. Something beautiful about being persecuted because of following Jesus. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. So when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, when he comes through that persecution, what happens at the end of the account? It says that the angels came to minister to him. When Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was stoned to death because of his faith in Jesus and proclamation of the gospel, it says as he died that he saw an open heaven. You see, when we're persecuted, there's something that happens that is beautiful where God opens to us something that is special and sweet and almost reserved to those who are committed to him. 
It also says that we join, right at the end, we join a long line of prophets who were persecuted before you. So you're not on your own. You're just joining the line of Elijah and, and, and Daniel and Jesus and Peter and right through the ages, the early fathers and, and people throughout the centuries, missionaries who have died for their faith and trust in Jesus. We're part of something. We're not unique. We're part of being persecuted as believers of Christ. One of my personal favorites and heroes is a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor who lived at the time of the Third Reich. And he's a massive hero of mine because his faith in Jesus and standing up for the gospel never wavered throughout all of the outrageous things that Hitler and the Nazi party did in the 30s and the 40s. He was imprisoned, he was tortured, and he was beaten. And incredibly, in 1945, he was executed by Himmler in a concentration camp just a couple of days before the liberation of all the concentration camps in Germany. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, out of experience, out of a life that he lived, he said, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Just read that one more time because that kind of hit me. Wow. Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. In discipleship to Jesus, we follow a suffering savior. We follow one who was beaten, one who had lies told against him, one who was treated unjustly. We follow, that's our savior, that's our master, that's the one that we follow. So as his disciples, we're to expect nothing less. What's the highest honor that can bestow upon a man or a woman in this earth? Queen of England? President of the United States? Nobel Peace Prize winner? Richest person in the world? All-time great sportsman or woman? The highest honor a human being can have is to realize first that they are pleased, that they please God. To realize that God loves them and they please God. The second is a level of anointing that comes from the Holy Spirit to those who suffer. There's something incredibly sweet and beautiful that comes to those who suffer for Jesus our Savior. Let me read one final scripture as I kind of bring this to a close, this point to a close. 1 Peter 4 and verses 12 to 14. Just, just listen to these verses. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
We're to rejoice. Something beautiful happens when we're persecuted because of Jesus. Not because we're annoying or inappropriate or get things wrong, but because of Jesus. Something sweet, something beautiful happens when we put ourselves in a place where we stand up for Jesus, where we love those that are, that are loved by no one else, where we speak out injustice and persecution comes. Something sweet follows that. We're to rejoice as we share Jesus' suffering. Okay, let me, let me conclude. Let me bring this together. We could have had four preachers today. I tell you, we could have gone even deeper into each four of those blessed beatitudes. But I want to say this. The standards of the Sermon on the Mount are in direct conflict to the standards of this world. Every single thing is in direct conflict. That's why the sermon series is called Flipped. You know, we're told to help others not worry about ourselves and our own promotion. Exactly the opposite of the world. We're told that to be spiritually broken and weak is the place to receive the graces of God, not to be all, I'm together and proud and got it all sorted. It's the complete opposite of what the world tells us. We're not to go for vengeance. We're not to go for retaliation. We're to go for mercy. We're to go for forgiveness. We're not to think that life is going to be comfortable and life is going to be beautiful without fault and without problems, but to expect persecution and to expect trials and to expect difficulties. Think of it like this. As you go through the Beatitudes, I want you to think of it like this. The gap widens. There's a man, there's a woman, there's a human being listening to the Sermon on the Mount, and, 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 and Jesus is speaking. And as he goes through the Sermon on the Mount, for me, the gap goes like this, between what the world is saying and what Jesus is telling me. And it gets wider and wider till we've read those eight Beatitudes and we go, oh my life, that's what the world is telling me and where I feel almost I am, and here is what Jesus is telling me, and, and here is the marks of a true disciple. Man, look at that gap. And this is what I want to say, and this is what we're going to do as a response. That gap is where we need the Holy Spirit. That gap is where we need God's power. That gap is, is the gap where the natural, we can't do it in the natural. So the supernatural has to come in and help us in the gap. So in a moment, Ben, could you come up? We're going to worship together, and we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come in this place and to fill us and to meet with us. Because we need God's help, because the gap is too big. We can't do it without the help of God himself through the Holy Spirit. Why don't you stand?